Welcome to Trailblazers. My name's Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. And in series one of this podcast, we talked to some legendary luminaries of electronic music, from Goldie to Marianne Hobbs, from Fatboy Slim to Gary Newman. You can go to Deezer.com for the full interviews and playlists, or subscribe to Trailblazers via your usual podcast provider. Yeah, Trailblazers is all about celebrating pioneers of, of electronic music, and uh, certainly our guest uh, today is, is an absolute pioneer pioneer of the of the trance area paul van dyke yeah this was a really interesting one for me because and we've talked about this before it's great in terms of education and we both have you know gaps in our musical knowledge mm. and 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 i think that we we work really well together because like a lot of my gaps are your strengths and a lot of your <laughs> yes. gaps are my strengths it's true yeah and this is one of my gaps so mm. i i was really interested to talk to um, a luminary from a genre that i know very very little about. I own maybe four trance records. Mm. Paul Van Dyke is one of those trance yeah. records. <laughs> you know, and I know I'm aware of what a legend he is. And yeah. so it was really interesting getting an insight into dance music and electronic music from a completely different uh, viewpoint. Yeah. And that's so refreshing, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's all it's, it's great stuff. Let's let's get straight into it. Paul Van Dyke. Deezer Originals. Trailblazers, Paul Van Dyke. Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire, invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside, if you will, to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is a world-famous DJ, producer, composer, and musician, the former number one DJ in the world and one of the only DJs ever to achieve that two years running, commonly regarded as the godfather of trance music, a Grammy Award winner and over three million record sales behind him at a time they were telling us that nobody buys records anymore. This is an ubermensch who's seen a lot of armpits of people with very big pupils in very big nightclubs. The greatest thing out of Eisenhüttenstadt since the Autobahn 112 Paul Van Dyke, <laughs> welcome to Trailblazers. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely to meet you, man. So it is, uh, it's a genuine thrill. And uh, like I, I always give the big introduction and then Nick will always fire the first question. So uh, Nick, why don't we get things, the, the ball rolling? Yeah, exactly. So, so Paul, you've had a fantastic career. It's, it's long, it's successful. What's the, the key to, to, to kind of longevity in this industry into staying in there and, and, and keeping doing stuff and keeping being in demand as the as, as time goes by well i think first of all i think it's passion you really have to love what you do because like mm. at the end of the day one thing is like all the fun is all the pupils as you call it <laughs> uh, but it's 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 also it is it is being professional it is uh, you know kind of making the best of of the drive of, of, of that passion, yeah. you know, that, that you have as an artist. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, work with people, with a team and, uh, and, uh, you know, make, 
make the dreams come true and the yeah. ideas that I have as an artist. Yeah, and is is that exactly the same thing that helped to establish you in in the beginning as well? The passion. Well, what actually plays a big role here is like how I grew up in East Germany and how I yeah. got introduced to music and mm. and also especially electronic music, uh, because one thing um, has to be understood is like in the in the beginning of the nineties, it was a very conscious decision of a lot of people, creative people in the world and especially in Berlin to make music that's kind of you know separate from the the marketing project driven stuff of the plastic pop of yes. the late 80s and there's a lot and, of that around wasn't there at the yeah. time yeah and and so it's like you know there was the only thing that matters was i have an idea i hear something in my head mm. let's play it let's make it happening yeah and and that's basically um the only drive yeah and 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 from there this 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 passion and this enthusiasm for this music uh you know basically came and then it's like you know everything obviously grew and because of the wall coming down and all this kind of stuff yeah. obviously became that big cultural revolution um, that we call electronic music days, which, these days, which, which must have been fascinating to to live through and and be and be part of, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But should we go back to the beginning then? Because yeah, it's let's, interesting let's rewind it because it is it, as you said that it, it I suddenly. I found it mind blowing that you, you were born on the other side of the Iron Curtain, in, in, weren't you? In a way, like you know, in, in East Germany, you're on the border of Poland. What was your musical awakening as a child? So tell us about you know what it was like growing up, you know, and when how you you first interfaced with music. Well, I was born, as you mentioned, in this beautiful town of Eisenhüttenstadt, but not long after, uh, my mom and I we moved to East Berlin. So that's where I basically grew up, and. Uh, for whatever reason, but, you know, my best friend was my radio. Mm. Uh, I was, like, constantly listening to radio when I did my homework and all that. And then there was this time in 1981. It's actually that long ago. Mm. Um, and I heard the first time I heard music. It had this impact. It was just like, wait a minute. This is so different. And please don't forget, I didn't speak any English. No. Uh, I just heard the music. I heard the voice. I heard how the emotions were brought across. And this is basically when I started to become this, this geek about music that I still am today. And, um, and that was, um, am I allowed to already say it? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Tell yeah. us. That, uh, it was um, the first single by the Smiths, Hand in Glove. Ah, okay. And yeah. I remember there was a radio show in Berlin at the time, obviously from West Berlin. I illegally, illegally listened to it in, in East Berlin. And every Wednesday they were broadcasting the British independent charts. And that was when that record became number one that I kind of heard it the first time. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. That's so different. And I became probably the biggest Smiths fan. I'm pretty sure every Smith fan says that, that they <laughs> are the biggest. But it really had a massive impact actually on me. And uh, I also remember a few years back, I uh, run in tomorrow, say, in a hotel lobby ah. in uh, in Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> and he didn't know who I was, of okay. course. And uh, but his tour manager knew me, so it's like I kind of just like went and just like you know, hey, you know, I don't want to bother you, and I just want to tell you, I make totally different music. But the reason why I'm making music is you. And he was just kind of like sitting there, like 
a bit with a grumpy face. What the heck is this guy talking about? <laughs> he's, such, he's such a grumpy. Felt, yeah. It, it, it felt good telling him, you yeah. know. Um, I don't know if he actually's like really understood what I mean by that, yeah. but really that moment when I heard the first time Hand in Love, that was when I sort of knew music is so much more than just this plingly plingly stuff in the background while you do other things. Dude, I, I have a Smith story that you will love, and you just reminded me of it. They were. Do you know what Freshers' Week is? Do you know what the concept of Freshers' Week is? No. So it, when, you, when you go to university mm-hmm. in this country, there is a week when everybody gets to university for the first time, where they have loads of gigs, and everybody gets really drunk, and you know you get like Freshers' flu, and like you know basically every new student gets mm. really really drunk for a whole week, and uh, they will always have bands, you know, playing, and it's and it's a real fruitful moment for bands, and you. You know, more recently, DJs, it's fresh as week. You know, every DJ and band's really busy in that kind of Oct- September, October period because of universities. And my fresh as week band was the Smiths. And it was the, it was the week that NME put them on the cover. Um, and it was the Hand in Glove tour. So I saw them on the Hand in Glove tour. And, you know, they came on with all their gladioli, like <laughs> fl- waving flowers. Yeah. I still can remember the smell of trampled gladioli all over the floor. <laughs> and there was this one moment where this, like the, the Smiths had this odd following of at that time before they were really famous. They had quite a lot of kind of skinheads and suede heads following them. And these are, these are quite scary looking people. And in the mosh pit, which was absolutely buzzing yeah. at Westfield College, University of London, yeah. um, there was this big, beefy, like skinhead guy that collided with me. And there was this moment where we looked at each other and I thought, are you going to beat the crap out of me? And I don't know what he was thinking, but then we just looked at each other and then we, there was this moment where I just thought, oh my God, am I going to get killed? And then he just smiled and then hugged me and we just hugged each other. And it was all like, it was because of the Smiths, you know, uh, that that happened. It was just a, music. So I, I, can, I can totally relate to the, to the joy that you felt, you know, listening to that <laughs> yeah, Smiths record. It was, it's just like, you know, absolutely, like still to this day, whenever I listen to the Smiths, um, it kind of like I don't know it does something special with me somehow maybe it's because of the history yeah. maybe it's because it's simply just probably the greatest band that ever existed <gasps> to me it is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what a shame that, that Moza didn't pick up the uh you know, that joy that you, you know, because you very intelligently said, I make such different music from you, but why I make it is because, you know, that's so inspiring. God, if I was, do you know what I mean? If somebody said that to me, I would be, I'd do a backflip, you know. Look, we never know. Maybe he did. <laughs> in his own mind. So he's a famous grump, well, they, you know. They, and they say, you know, that danger in meeting your heroes that there's, you know, sometimes it can play out beautifully and yeah. sometimes not. But I'm, I'm, it's good. It's cool that you, you got a chance to do that, man. Should we, should we hear this, this piece of music? Absolutely, oh, yeah, what a, what a joy. Trailblazers. So the Smiths, hand in glove, uh, sounding resplendent uh, <laughs> there. So you were listening to the, the radio. Did, did you feel that you were doing something subversive, you know, kind of living on the edge a little bit by starting to absorb Western music when you were living in East Berlin? 
Well, the thing is, the only, you know, I mean, I was like 10, 11 years old, so you don't really get the scope of the political situation as right. much. Uh, it was just that my mom always sort of like told me to keep the volume down. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure it's, if it's because of the neighbors <laughs> or because or the of the s- other secret police. neighbors. <laughs> or, and, or because Maurice's voice was annoying to her. Yeah, so, it could be. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure she liked it too, because, you yeah. know, at, at some point she had to basically kind of you put know, up with it. Yeah. 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 She, she, she had to listen to it too. And um, yeah, so it, it, it didn't really feel like uh, you know I'm doing something no, let's say illegal. But it, it was felt basically inc- incredibly exciting, and it, it was engaging. just like I didn't think in this in this way. Right. It was just simply this music was like so incredible and amazing. Yes, and uh, you know later on I understood that by me listening to that music that sort of felt so liberating to me yeah right, right. It first of all it created that kind of like you know cosmopolitan mind in myself uh-huh. uh, and and also it kind of um, you know I don't know it was my my gate to the to the free world yeah in I a way you know that. I was yeah. listening to that music I closed my eyes I, I dreamt myself out of the way I remember a few years later when um, they came out with the album Strange Ways Here We Come mm. uh, I always thought it was like oh Strange Ways that must be Strange Way that must be a really really cool place <laughs> later on I found out it's a bloody jail in Manchester it is, it is one of the grimmest places in the UK so, actually, I was yeah. going to say it's very it's kind of interesting just Culturally, and thinking back to what you're saying in that time, that you were listening to this music and having this really big emotional reaction to it. And for most people, the most important thing in the Smiths is the lyrics. But of course, you weren't getting that because you didn't speak yeah. English. You were just picking up on a vibe. I feel as though we should big up Johnny Marr at this point. Because, you know, <laughs> what an amazing guitar player. And you Absolutely. were getting... But the thing is, like, you know, in a way, what I liked so much about it was like, there was this three guys playing something beautiful mm. and then there was Morrissey singing something totally different on top of it <laughs> yeah. that mostly just fit in like in a weird strange way and I think that tension created the beauty of this music and I just loved it it was just yeah. like you know all this I don't know freedom and it was just like amazing and of course later on I found out what I was singing along to sometimes uh-huh. and, um, I was um, you know rather amused okay. <laughs> yeah of course so, so I'm interested to know though when you first encountered dance or electronic music um, obviously it's like you know from that day on I was kind of like a big freak about music so I was listening to the radio constantly and I was obviously looking for those specialized radio shows and there was another radio presenter her name is uh, Monika Dietl uh, in one of the West Berlin radio stations and she played like total upfront back then we probably would say futuristic music from if it was like hip hop stuff, something that would be come big ten years later, or, mm. or it's like you know some some dancey mm. stuff. Mm. This is and Radio Eins or Flux FM or that was uh, SFB, right. Sender SFB. Freies Berlin, right, right, right. right. Um, well, yeah, basically broadcast station free Berlin. Yeah, man. And um, so um, I was listening to that station all the time, and she played like you know. The, the first stuff we probably would call like early house music, you know, from, okay. I don't know, Marshall Jefferson and, yeah. and all the lots. So, um, and that's, you know, how I got introduced to that kind of music. And okay. then it became more and more instrumental as well. And I, I always liked the, the electronic sounds and feels, you know, it's like I've been a big fan of like bands like Depeche Mode and Yazoo yeah. and I was all these say, things. Yeah. And uh, obviously then suddenly there was, this music that just like basically 
it spoke to me. It invited me to be part of it as 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 a musical listener, because there was nobody singing and telling me, oh, you know, I met this girl here and there and this, and then we all have to be set now. It's a love song. No. There were no lyrics. It was just the pure music. It was the horizon. It was a dimension of that music that I felt is so inspiring and the yeah. drive and the energy. And obviously, at the time, I could never go to any clubs. That's <laughs> what I was going to bring up, though. So you, when you first heard Chicago house music, you could only absorb it kind of on the radio. You weren't exposed to it in 1986 or 87 in a in a club no not at all the first time i actually went out to a proper well let's say electronic music club was like in 1990 because right. before that obviously i was on the on the wrong side of the wall wow. uh, listening to whatever was played in those specialist radio shows wow well that's quite an that's quite different isn't it to quite a lot of our guests who yeah. we talked to a paul oakenfold or whatever and you know 87 88 right in the thick of this explosive club scene but you probably equally passionate about it but still haven't had chance to really go to a proper club yet this time really shaped my approach towards music like still to this day because I could never go to a record store buy a record I could never read anything about my favorite artist I didn't even know what Morrissey looks like until you know far far later, later. Yeah. so uh, forgive my so, ignorance but why could you not go to a record store and buy a record were there no record store was it like illegal to have sort of western music there or something no, the thing is there were record stores but they were kind of like uh, you know run by the state and there was a record company called Amiga which only licensed I don't know, uh, Harry Belafonte music or something mm, like that. Yeah, uh, right. certainly, certainly not something Nothing like the Smiths. Was edgy or you, so they were yeah. just prescribing music yeah. to yes. use to keep them calm. And uh, <laughs> and 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 so they basically, um, I don't know. I think I, I remember there was like one store where they sold records in East Berlin, but certainly nothing I was interested right. in. Right. Yeah. Wow. wow. And but because of that, it's purely the audiophile. That interests me. Yeah. As I said, I didn't even speak English. So I didn't even know what is the message of Morrissey. Uh, what's what do they look like? What do they have to say beside of their music? So it was purely the music. So, and I still have that very pure relationship to music. I don't really care who did it, where the person's from, yeah. what the people has to say. If they make great music, then it's great music. And that's what I'm inspired by. That's what actually interests me. And did you pick up on, in those days, like the, the Krautrock guys, you know, Holger Suke and, uh, you know, Can and Noy and those amazing uh, musicians that were making music, music only mild, miles away from where you were? Um, well, I, I knew about them mm. and I heard about them, but uh, I don't know, maybe there was a, a little bit too harsh for my ears. I yeah. Know, I, was, I was really kind of like, I don't know, it's like still to this day, I, I like beautiful sound, something that's sort of comfortable listening to, despite the dynamic that the music that I make has and, and, and the music that I like has. But it's always kind of like a nice sort of soundscape to it. Well, why don't you pick a record now that could properly soundtrack that part of your life when you were listening to the radio and you were the, the dawn of electronica for you you know one of these problems is whenever i think about this it's like there's another record popping up but one track and one record that apparently um seems to always kind of like you know be on that li or is on that list is uh, a cyclone a place called bliss 
Yeah, that was that a plus eight record? Am I like a Richie? No, I think it was Network. Network. Yeah, it okay. was uh, it was on Network Records. Okay. And what I really liked about it is just like really this big sort of boom, 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 and then all this weird little like sample bits, but really lush and beautiful, but still had this dynamic to it. Um, another like track that's sort of like more on the sort of driving part is uh, uh, Trilliton. I don't even know what it's uh, what the no. What, what, what the, the artist was, okay. but there were like some some amazing records. It's like you know, probably whenever you kind of go on a search engine and you look for music that was like, I don't know, somehow inspiring in 1990, <laughs> um, I would come up with. <laughs> so let's have a listen to that uh, cyclone, a, a place called Bliss. Trailblazers, Paul Van Dyke. So you're listening to Trailblazers and we are with uh, Paul Van Dyke and we are in East Berlin and uh, through your radio you've uh, identified with this electronic sound and you know you've you've had a great emotional connection to it. You're really absorbing it. It sounds like you're you know you're very passionate about it and you're absorbing so much. Was there a point or an inspirational track or an artist at that point or roundabout, you know, somewhere in that uh, part of your life that made you think, I want to do this. I could do this. Maybe, you know, I, I, I'm inspired so much because, you, you know, you, you were a consumer, but at what point did you, you sort of your mind change from a consumer to maybe a creator? Well, it wasn't necessarily that I thought, oh, I could do that. It was more the fact that obviously the Berlin um, club scene, electronic music scene back then was like very um, driven by the sound of techno, by Detroit techno especially. And, um, you know, my musical influences, they came from so many different places as well, except maybe one or two DJs back in the time, like one was DJ Rocky in Berlin. He was like playing like really diverse, beautiful stuff. There was this uh, record, uh, uh, Techno Cop, okay. um, which was like absolutely phenomenal, like this really beautiful, it's a really early trance record in a way, before right. we called it trance. Yeah. Um, but he was like playing that kind of stuff, but he was the only one. So I went to the record stores, I found the records that I really enjoyed, and I started mixing tapes just like for myself. And, uh, and you know, so friends and I, when we were like driving somewhere, we listened to it in the car. And one of my friends actually passed the tape on um, to the promoters that actually were running the club nights at Tresor in Berlin. Right. I said, like, hey, here, this is like, you know, somewhat different sounds, like maybe you're interested and blah. And uh, this is how I actually got my first show so I didn't even approach um, the profession um, in, in terms of becoming a musician or becoming uh, a DJ or something it was really I, I did it because I wanted to listen to the music that I love so much and um, yeah and then I owe it to that friend that passed on the tape really that I got my first show booked and your first show was was in Trezor 
was at Trezor, yeah. Whoa, what a, what a place to play your first gig, yeah. It was actually really scary because, you know, it's like I was a bedroom DJ, like classical thing. Yeah. It was actually in my bedroom. Yes. So you don't have the bass very no. loud. You don't really Basic. turn up the volume so much. Yeah, yeah. And so suddenly I'm there in this club with this huge sound system and I heard things in those records that I never heard before. And I was like, kind of shit, that sounds so different. <laughs> and, your, and your ears must have hurt. I remember my, my, first, my first gig in a big club. I was like, oh my god, this is actually hurting me. Like this is the, the, the you know, the, the monitors were like louder than any speaker that I'd ever well, yeah. been in the, front of. The good thing is, I was like, you know, I was out clubbing, so it's like, you know, I knew um, the, the the volume of of, of yeah. those PA. So that yeah. wasn't really the problem. It was yeah. really just that you hear different frequencies yeah, and do. different dynamic of a bass line, as an yeah. example. And um, yeah, and then everything else kind of started from there, really. So then you started making music, I imagine. Yeah, that was about, like, from that first show, yeah. um, uh, a few other sort of, like, you know, possibilities to play arrived. Mm. And so in Berlin, we had not like big magazines like you have here in the UK. We had like little, they were called fan scenes, yes. like just like little yeah. things. Yeah, cool. And, um, and the guy who was also a producer and a musician who, who worked as a freelance journalist for one of those, uh, his name's Cosmic Baby. Ah, oh, right. And yes. because I was playing so different music, obviously they were like interested. Who is that weird guy? So he's like playing this different music from everyone else so basically there was an interview arranged between between Harald which, between Cosmic Baby and, and myself mm. and we instantly clicked and we became friends and we kind of like realized we are both very passionate about music and despite the fact I had no idea about any kind of like music instruments or production things or whatsoever um, we kind of like you know said let's it's make something to the, together it's like yeah, create sure. something together and it was actually quite interesting because the thing is I would be putting a headphone on and then just playing something you know pressing those white and black buttons on mm. the keyboard mm. and um, until it felt kind of like nice and then kind of like you know took the headphone off and said hey Cosmic what do you think about this and then we recorded it. And so basically, this is how the first visions of Shiva came about. Right. So putting all these things together. And of course, Cosmic was the one producing the majority of it because, yes. like, you know, he had the talent, uh, you know, and, and the knowledge about how to do these things. But when I was in the studio, I had a clear idea how the things should sound that I like. Yep. Uh, what the things should feel that we make. Yeah. And uh, in the moment I did that, I was kind of infected. I started learning everything, like how to play yeah. piano, how to do the production stuff, how to use those little shitty computers we had back then, and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it kind of like grew from there. Amazing. So was the first record that you, you made, what was that? What was the record and what was the artist? It was... The first record I was involved with was a project called Visions of Shiva, yeah. which is uh, Cosmic Baby and myself. Yep. And it was called The Perfect Day. Okay. Maybe should we should have a little listen yeah, to that. That's an should. important moment for you. Trailblazers.
We've just listened to uh, to Paul Van Dyke's first ever record, and I, I just want—I feel as though I, I just missed a trick with um, with something. I just want to rewind to just before this or around this time to you know your first DJ set. So, what were you playing? Were you, was it very eclectic? I mean, were you playing any vocals in your sets? Were you? Did you reach back and find that Francois K mix of this charming man to drop in there as a as a surprise, or was it all was it very techno based in those days? It was. I, I, I don't know. It's like probably was a melodic, electronic sounding techno. Yeah. Somehow, you know, because there was like so much music back then that already had those, you know, general features. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I liked. So apparently, you know, whenever we all went, there was a record store in Berlin called Hardwax Records where everybody went. And, oh, uh, oh, and is it, it still in the same place? I, I don't. I don't think it's there anymore. I'm it's not, not quite. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Okay. But um, the point was like you know when let's say ten DJs were in those stores, then nine of them would all buy the same record, and I would be the freak buying the other one, and uh, so it was. I don't know. There was like something that um, was more synthesizer based rather than just the typical Detroit Detroit techno drums. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you've always you're you're a real master of melody, and 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 you know there's a real musicality to what you do, isn't there? So, I guess you were finding these records that were kind of trance before trance, if you like. But yeah, possible. I mean, it's like you know all these all these terms and labelings of music is like it became very important these days, even more than let's say back then. But yeah, this music existed because there were people who kind of like, you know, felt that, you know, the dynamic of those drums, the drive, the sequences, but also this uplifting moment when you hear a loving, amazing pat. So this period then, you you just sort of naturally became a DJ producer by profession in 1991, two, three-ish, am I right? Or? Well, the thing is, I was I was doing an uh, apprenticeship as a, as a carpenter at the time. Carpentry, really? Because, <laughs> uh, okay. because, you know, it's like, I remember after the war went down, my mom and I, we moved to Hamburg. Right. So I didn't really fancy Hamburg, Hamburg too much. Mm. Beautiful city, but it wasn't me. Yep. So I went back to Berlin, and at one point my mom said, you're coming back, you have to do something with your life. Mm. And I just thought, okay, uh, what am I going to do? And so on a Tuesday, I called, um, you know, the, the carpentry shop, or carpentry yeah. shop, I don't know how you call it. Yeah, yeah, carpenters. Um, yeah. I called the carpenter. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, and he said, yeah, just come by. So Wednesday I came by and on Thursday I started. So I called my mom and said, sorry, I can't come back to Hamburg. I have a job here to do. Yes. And so basically that gave me the possibility of kind of, you know, learning a proper job at okay. the same time, um, kind of financing somehow my my hobby yeah. that would later on become my profession. Mm. And I did that for about two and a half, three years, actually both together yep. till a point where actually being in the studio or at clubs at night and then uh, in the morning um, not cutting your thumb off um, was a bit on the edge. Yeah. So um, I decided, uh, you know, I had to make a decision on what I like more and where I see a better future for myself. And when was that? I think that was about 93, 94. Okay. And had you had there been a steady flow of records that you'd made sort of through that period? 
yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I've, I've done a few remixes in between. Okay. And, um, you know, like You Made Love Stimulation. Oh, I that's a classic. Also yeah. uh, done a remix for New Order at the time. Right. Um, so things... Good stuff. Some things actually, like, came together. My first album came in 94. Okay. And, yeah, there was a regular sort of Flow. And were you just playing in Germany as a DJ at that point, or, or around that kind of 94 time had you managed to start to get a bit of an international thing going on? Actually, that was quite an interesting sort of like thing for me because before I, let's say, made it a bit bigger in, in Germany or in Berlin, to be specific, I actually was a resident uh, in New York at Limelight for Disco 2000, which came about in a really, wow. you know, lucky fashion. Um, back then, um, you know, there was like the new music seminar in of New York. Course, and yeah. there was uh, one event called the German Night, right. where uh, sponsored by a big cigarette manufacturer, yep. um, they invited all the big DJs from Germany to actually perform there and represent the German yeah. idea of electronic music. And one of the big DJs back then, DJ Dunn, from yes. Dance to Trance, yes. he couldn't do it. So I was uh, the substitute, uh. and they took me on. So I went there, and apparently I I took my chance and kind of like, you know, I, I played a set, I, I rocked the crowd, and a guy called Howard Schaefer, who used to have the first DJ agency in the United States, he was there, and he says, like, wow, that was really cool. It's like, would you like to come by next Monday to, to our office and, like, maybe talk what we can do in the future? And so obviously I, I went there on the, on the following Monday and he said, hey, look, if you like to stay, it's like, you know, we running Disco 2000 here with DJ Kiyoki, you could be playing next Wednesday. So I stayed even a few more days. I played Disco 2000. It went down very well. And uh, I was asked to actually come back once a month. Lovely. So before I was kind of anyhow a vaguely noticeable name, in, in Germany, I was already resident DJ and Amazing. part of the club culture in New York somewhat. Obviously, a little later than this this fame that arises from this touring in the US and, some, and so on, kind yeah. of swapped back to Germany and then it kind of synchronized it yeah. in a more global fashion all over. I had no idea that you were a resident in New York at, at that time. And, and that club, I remember DJing at Limelight myself, which probably in about 92, uh, an XL night that we did. And it was pretty pretty crazy, you know. And obviously there's been films about that era and some very weird stuff, of course, went down. But that, you, you, that guy, Lord Mike, was running the... That must have been maybe the Friday night, I guess, which was... Or one of the nights he was... Yeah, I remember, obviously, it's like, you know, I was... You have to imagine a little naive yeah. kid, passionate about music, suddenly in the middle of the craziest of the New York club nightlife. Well, that's same for me, in a way, because, you know, I wasn't a drug taker, and and you, yeah. I'm sure you presume neither, you weren't neither. either. But we were, yeah, professional. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and same thing. When I DJed there, I was like, whoa, God, like, everybody here other than me is, from the top management through to the guys behind the bar to, through to everybody in the crowd is was, off their face. It was, <laughs> I had the same was, experience at Man U Mission many, many times. Uh, <laughs> okay, right, okay, yeah. No, but, yeah, no, that was actually, it's like, you know, something, I I was in the middle of these things, and you mentioned some of the movies that have been done about yeah. it. I can tell you, I was in the middle of it, and the movie is very accurate. Mm. Mm. And um, I've, I've, I've experienced things. I mean, we've done, like, crazy stuff. You know, they called themselves the New York Club Kids. Yeah. And, um, and it was just, like, 
crazy stuff. There was this thing we did. So you remember those old like uh, ghetto blasters, blasters from the 80s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had one of those. So we yeah. basically, we did kind of, it was like rave and run. Okay. That's what it was called. <laughs> so we would go to some public place, put on the, the, the ghetto blaster, play our electronic techno music, dance the shit out of it until the police came and then run and away. And then run away. And go to the next <laughs> Rave and run. And, I love that. And I remember there was, there was a huge ice cream store right on Times Square where I almost got arrested because I was kind of just kind of, you know, like the last one getting out. The last one to and, run. Mm. And my trick was to just like order some ice cream. So I kind of like, oh, I'm just a customer, guys. Just a customer. I'm just having ice cream. Yeah. Bye-bye. So, but it was like, I'm a tourist. I'm just getting yeah. some ice cream. Yeah. yeah. Just, no, oh, but fantastic. really, they were like, they, they were like some crazy fun times there. Well, Paul, why don't you pick a record from that, from those times? Either a record that that you used to rave and run to, or a record that, as you say, rocked the crowd at limelight. In, at limelight. Yeah. I uh, I think. One of the records from that time somehow is Rest by Underworld. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. Wow, yeah. yeah. What a tune. Incredible. But you know, that's exactly what I mean. It's like, if you would have asked me which ones are your tracks... That wouldn't have come up. That probably. wouldn't have come up now. But it's like now thinking of it, because yes. it was exactly that day when we had that, like, you know, rave and run thing, <laughs> is when uh, DJ Kiyoki got a test pressing of that record. And was playing it in the office the whole time. And was like, kind of, wow. Amazing. Yes, the Junior um, Boys' own label going round and round. Absolutely incredible. Trailblazers. Paul Van Dyke. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. So, Paul, take us now, move us more to the sort of 95, 96, maybe even 97 era, and tell me how you managed to transition from, from being a, a, a star in Germany onto the, to the, to the sort of global stage. Despite of passion and enthusiasm, what you need as well is an element of luck and also people that believe in you. And I was very lucky to actually find that one in Rob Deacon, who was running the Deviant record label. And um, when he heard my second record, uh, which was called Seven Ways, he, he signed it for the UK. And he believed in it so much that despite and against all odds, he made that record a huge success mm-hmm. and uh, without a record label um, and a record label owner with that enthusiasm it probably wouldn't have become that big but that kind of let's say broke me into the English speaking media yeah, and that kind of like propelled the career obviously on a different level because then suddenly people all over the world were reading about me about my music about what I'm doing and so on and, um, yeah, that was kind of sort of the, the next step. I did my first, let's say, bigger tours in the UK. Uh, and yes, this is what, what year is this? 
We Talking 96. Right, this is right. Okay. Because I have a little anecdote connected to this. So we had a, and just something that, that shows that it doesn't necessarily happen easily and quickly. So when I was running Positiva at that time, we had a monthly residency at the Ministry of Sound and we were allowed to sort of, you know, suggest guest DJs to play. And you hadn't played in the UK at that time, but um, Kevin Robinson, who works with me at Positiva, was raving about you um, and, and we, we knew the records that you were making. And we said to Ministry, how about this guy, Paul Van Dyke, maybe he can play on one of our Positiva residencies at Ministry because he's not played in the UK yet. And Ministry said to us, yeah, but putting his name on a flyer, he doesn't mean anything here, so we're not going to support you in that. You know, we need to be having guest names that are going to bring more people through the door. So, no, that Paul doesn't work for us. So we tried. It it could have been us that could have given you your your first London play, but unfortunately Ministry were like, nah, not going to to go for it yeah Mm. well you know the thing is you have to be you know somewhat i don't know persistent and i think at the end of the day you know if if you believe in something and i really i i believe in my music you know i do it with like you know all my heart yes um you know you will be convincing at some point and um, this essentially what sort of you know somewhat worked and then again as i said um, you know, I owe a lot to Rob Deacon from yep. Deacon Records, who kind of invested a lot of uh, time and money and effort uh, into making this record available um, yep. to the people mm. that were interested in it. Yeah. And then maybe the really big point in record making for you uh, UK-wise, presumably, was when Foreign Angel started to bubble through, I'm imagining. In terms of changing kind of how you were perceived in the UK and, and moving it up the, a, Yeah, I think that notch. was even I think that was even like two years later because yes. obviously in the UK my second album was released as the first album, so they thought of actually taking my first album, which came out in ninety four mm. and release it in between. And obviously Fawn Angel, the original version, was on that album. Yep. So um Rob thought it's a good idea to remix it and kind of re-record it and actually release it as a single. Yes. And uh, first I was like very, like, you know, hesitant to it because mm. like it was a track from 94. Why would we re-release it in 98? So, you know, I wasn't really feeling too, too good about it. And um, he um, he overruled my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and, it, and it was released. And uh, I remember playing playing it the very first time at I don't even know if it was already called Creamfields or still Homelands oh one of those two right yeah. and um, I played it there and it was kind of like my last track yeah and obviously back then there were no like you know turntable uh, CD players that nope. you couldn't mix and stuff so I played it from a dat yes just like the pure track unmixed at the end of my set and everybody went bonkers oh. <laughs> and it was it was amazing. It's like, you know, for an artist, it is it's absolutely uh, amazing to see when people, you know, take on something that you did yourself and that means something to you and, and, and kind of make it their own and we all celebrate that moment of that piece of music together. Oh, man, that record was so 
pivotal and so special in that era. Yeah, for me, when I was running Positiva and we were putting out big trance records around it. And again, we tried really hard to sign the record and sign you. Um, and, and we went and we saw Rob and really would have loved the Fallen Angel thing just... Oh, we would have killed to have that sitting on Positiva at the time uh, and sitting alongside some of those other really great trance records that you were you were playing and you were involved in. Not to be. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't. We weren't able to do so. But yeah, what a, what a classic. Brilliant, brilliant record. And, and of course, by now, trance was just the biggest thing in dance music. It turned but into I, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to get an understanding from, actually from both of you. Mm. So you've got trance. If you imagine Venn diagrams, you've got trance here and you've got Paul Van Dyke here. Mm. Or... Are they the same thing? Like, or, or when did you like? Did you come into it, or did it come to you? Or like, was your first re- ever record that you made? Would you call that a trance record? Well, the thing is that the record label that I used to release my music with uh, in Germany, MFS Records, um, they kind of I think came up with the term trance for the first time. At least this is how I heard it. And so, so I think Mark, Mark Reader yes. himself came up with the idea of like, let's call this stuff kind of trance or um, something. I don't, I don't know if it was that simple but or if it was just of, kind of like a kind labeling of something. Yeah. Okay. But, but the point was, I was like from the beginning affiliated with that sort of like trancey sound somewhere. Yes. Because, um, you know, somehow if there's a melody, if there's like a certain dynamic to the music, uh, it was called trance. Yeah, so, and, and, and and that's basically what my music has. And, and you were operating at about 136 BPM or something like that around that time. But, but when you first yeah. started, I presume you were in the in the 120s. I'm just interested in sort of how it kind of developed, you know, when and how it kind of like I morphed think, into what we know, you know, as trance now. I think it was a logical progression. It's like, you know, from this sort of like, let's say, smaller, more intimate, like sessions, like DJ sets from the really interested sort of like electronic music lovers of like, let's say the beginning of the 90s till, um, you know, the big club explosion of the super clubs at the sort of like second part of the 90s. And obviously record labels like like Positiva, they kind of made this music basically available to kind of like people that maybe wouldn't go to Gatecrusher, but then suddenly they heard music that was played at a place like Gatecrusher or Cream or God's Kitchen and they loved it and so it became bigger and bigger and bigger and and one thing I think that happens Eddie is one great record comes out in a in a genre um, and then you know it br- draws more people in and more people make more interesting records off the back of it so then another great record emerges and then there's been then there's been two three four pivotal fantastically exciting records in that scene and then it just takes on a life of its own i mean there were a lot of big records coming very quickly so yeah month after it, month you yeah might it was huge and it Ferricotcha, was system Man, yeah ferry corston yeah, yeah i, I remember because i wasn't involved in any way in trance no. i wasn't it wasn't my thing but every now and then i'd hear one of your records or i'd hear a ferry corston record and i think Oh, you know what? This is really good, you know. And I bought, you know, I've got, I've got, like, I've got maybe like that many trance records in my collection, very small yeah, amount. Yeah. But it's like but it's you and Ferry, and I can't remember one other. Like yeah. the, I, and there was that, like I can't remember. I think it was a bar. It was a remix of Barbara Zadagio or something like that. Oh and, yeah, that was and, very, and, and, very yeah. Succinct, and I just yeah. thought, gosh, you know, it is. It's so musical, and it's it, you, you. You were almost like taking pads from kind of 
I don't know, it was always ravey kind of like pads that you're using, but layering them in a really interesting, very musical, very melodic way. It sounded very, uh, it was very deep, you and, know. And then the other thing, of course, that happened in that, in that era, rather than it, um, just being music um, and, and good music, it really kind of had a whole lifestyle wrapped around it, which is, well, I want to move on to Gate Crasher and the, the Crasher Kids, and I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your experience playing in that particular venue which has gone down in history as a as a very special part of the of the development of, of electronic music in the UK. Well on on the back of the success of On Angel obviously I was booked like you know much more often in the UK and uh, there was like the era of the super clubs as I mentioned God's Kitchen, yeah. Cream, Gay Crusher and um, a few others. Yeah. And um Basically, at Gay Crusher, it's like, you know, it was a very unique dynamic. There was like this core fans of the venue itself. They called themselves the Gay Crusher Kids. And they kind of made all this effort to dress up with spiky hair and colorful clothes and all kinds of stuff. They really lived the moment. They really did, yes. And um, for whatever reason, they adopted me as their as their favorite DJ. And... Um, and I was also, I was like, you know, because, you know, I'm still coming from the time where DJ used to play like for like longer sets, kind of like putting some dynamic in rather than just one and a half or two hours where you pretty much you play the main time, you bang the big out, the big tracks out and, and stuff like this. And so I was asked, like, you, you want to do this here? It's like, and I was like, yeah, sure. So I started playing those six hour sets at Gate Crusher. And it obviously has a very different dynamic if it's like, like 3 a.m. where they usually hear the biggest tune and you actually play something rather deep at that time because you kind of, you know, you, you have a different sort of wave through the nights. Like, you know, you create that vibe, you take people on a journey. And that's what I did. And this is what, you know, became so special about me playing those long sets there. And um, what the Crusher kids have been rather famous for as well, where, uh, you know, taking a lot of illegal substances and things like this. And I always said, look, guys, it's like, if I would take any drugs, I wouldn't be able to play for six hours. Hmm. It's purely the music that drives me. And you see me there just as, just as excited as you are. So it's like, I'm not telling you what to do, but I just, maybe for once... Don't take anything. Just listen to the music. Just go with the flow for six hours and you will have the experience of your lifetime. And they did. And they kind of really followed that. They kind of experienced that. And this is when they all came up and they made their T-shirts. There's no E in Paul Van Dyke and things like this. <laughs> and uh, Natural so, dopamine, man. Yeah. Natural and, dopamine. And so, uh-huh. you know, it became it became that sort of relationship really with with the club and 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 with the with the audience more than yeah. with the club actually yeah no those those spots were incredibly exciting to visit eddie cuz you know you weren't kind of tapping into that circuit but you know people would travel for miles to to get to gate crasher or cream or you know some of the other the spots that were kicking off and it w- it was a wall of energy and excitement that was was quite something and there were some amazing equally in in london there were some amazing places again positive had a residency at uh, at bagley's freedom saturday night at bagley's which was not a, f- a famous one that got a club that that kind of got talked about in 
the same breath as as Cream or Gatecrasher, but incredible. You know, thousands of people there every Saturday, and uh, yeah, just it was it was it was very exciting, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's like you know, one of the things when I look back is I'm I'm very happy that I was able to kind of live and experience the whole evolution of this music somehow that I've was there to experience it and even better from my artistical point that you know at some points I had the chance of like dropping a little mark and being somewhat involved in in in, in how this scene this music has shaped trailblazers We're with Paul Van Dyke. You're listening to Trailblazers. And uh, Paul, you've just sort of taken our hand and walked us through a really interesting time in uh, in, in UK, in, in, you know, the UK becoming this dance music explosion of youth culture that was, you know, that was a, the biggest thing since since punk. And you're kind of synonymous with that. You know, you, you it must have been so interesting for you seeing that. And then you must have witnessed that in a global way because you must have started then to go to Ibiza and, and back to New York, I presume, and, and especially all over Europe because I guess, you know, America was a little bit behind uh, Europe in, in electronic music in, in some ways at that point in, in the chart kind of thing. I... I tend to not agree with that because I was playing already like in front of 15,000 people in Los Angeles in 95, 96. There was already a huge scene that was interested in that music. You know, people like Christopher Lawrence, they were like heroes in the mid 90s already. Oh, that's long, interesting. Long, long before, you know, let's say the UK, let's say swept electronic music over to the to the US. It was there already. And, uh, you know, if you think of places like uh, uh, Simons in Gainesville or Firestone in Orlando, all the big important DJs of the world went through that place. I believe like Sasha and, and John Digweed, they had the residency there. Uh, you know, lucky enough, I had the chance of playing there a few times. And it's... Uh, it, it has been there for far longer than, let's say, it's it's been recognized because of the, let's say, I mean, today we use the term mainstream media didn't really the, the, report on no, it. No, they didn't. Yeah, that's the, odd, given that they were, you're saying there was 15,000 people in one place. That sounds huge, you know, that's, that's, that's proper big. I mean, it wasn't across all the states, though, was it? It was, it, they, they, were, they weren't massive scenes popping off everywhere. It, it was... There no, were it, it, it wasn't that were yeah. more, more vibrant than others. And yeah, you didn't, would maybe didn't... call it like cultural, like yeah. hotspots in a way. Yes. So, you know, like Los Angeles. I yeah. remember as well in San Francisco, Chicago, New York, of course. Interestingly enough, Washington, they had mm. like a long, 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 uh, they have a long history of electronic music being part of their places yeah but you, you're right the the american media were very late to really report on that and and kind of go hey this electronic music thing is something that we can be proud of and we can kind of own as our own that was the thing that, that didn't come until 
a lot later. Mm. Whereas in the UK, I think the UK media was very quick to embrace it and say, hey, this is our thing. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But how fascinating came. that you saw this explosion on such a global <laughs> level. You're one of the few people that could actually, you know, play in almost any country and pull a crowd. What were the best places to play in that time in your career? What, what were the places that you sort of emotionally identified with the most? I don't know. I said it's... It's really difficult. I mean, a few spots, obviously, is like the first time I ever went to Japan. But then again, it's like we're talking even a few years earlier. I think there was in like 95, 96. And, you know, to me, these promoters, in a way, they are like the real heroes because they invested their money in a DJ nobody has ever heard of in Japan just because they heard me playing somewhere and they liked it and they wanted to have me presenting my music to their audience so these guys really have been the substance of this global growth of electronic music back in the days but i also remember you know special shows i remember the first time i played in mexico it was actually um, near the pyramids and i think it's called teotihuacan i don't can't probably pronounce it and it was just like phenomenal in this huge outdoor space and it was phenomenal and amazing and I also remember, um, I'm not quite sure exactly when that was, I think it was the early 2000s, I played in Guatemala. And just two, three weeks before, the Pope visited Guatemala City. And the event was held at the very same spot where the Pope <laughs> spoke to the people just three weeks before. And I remember that like in the middle of the set I had to pee so I was like running <laughs> and because somebody was in a in a Dixie toilet so I went and just like peed through the fence and I just looked up to the skies like wow electronic music is huge it's like now we're in the field where the Pope just spoke in Guatemala this is awesome yeah <laughs> I've, I've seen a few examples of that um, I went with Casper to Cape Town in uh, in South Africa and they're dubstep DJ and uh, they built a big kind of rave in in this this sort of city square and it was basically on the steps when when Mandela Mandela got freed he stood on the steps of this sort of courthouse and did a speech and uh and yeah however many years later Casper the guy I managed was boshing out dubstep you know just a stone's throw away from where that historic moment had happened and I found that quite amusing as well wow, amazing <laughs> so the South Africans could get their skank on. Yeah, big time, big time. <laughs> so, Paul, at this point, you couldn't be more successful. You have, um, at this point, been named as the number one DJ in the world twice for, for two years running hmm. in the, uh, you know, the, the, the much famed, you know, top 50, top 100 DJs uh, in the world. And you're touring, you're, you're playing everywhere in all of these different countries. Um, what would be a tune that was front and center in your set? A, a tune that could, you, you could play in any country, you know, you, you've probably got a few of these kind of bombs that you could play anywhere that would always make sense in whatever country that you're in. Um, regardless of if it would have made sense to play it somewhere, um, I would probably say it would be um, Doxilla. And don't ask me about the name of the track. The, you are the only thing I need. D-O-G-Z-I-L-A. Oh, Dogzilla. Okay. Yeah. It's a great record. I, I played it at the, at, the, at the Laugh Parade, at the final manifestation in front of 1.5 million people, mm. and they loved it. So it has to be good. Trailblazers. Paul Van Dyke. You are the only thing I need. 
So you made quite a few artist albums on your your journey. What's your view about the making artist albums? Do you think that it's still an important thing to do to have a that traditional body of work, or are you one of these guys who go actually not so much? I still believe in making an artist album because uh, it is. As you call it, it is a body of work. It's like something where it's not just one track that you kind of like bang out to kind of be listened to for two, three days. It's actually something um, you offer to the audience to kind of listen to and, I don't know, follow the journey the record provides. And even if they just take three, four tracks of it, it's like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bigger volume of art. It's a bigger volume of what I'm musically about than just like, let's say, three, four, five minutes of one track every month. Of course, the way how things are released these days is not the classical thing. First single video, second single video, then comes the album, then comes the third single and the video, blah. It's all like very different. It's almost in a kind of like four to six week release pattern, but it still is all connected with an album concept um, altogether. And I believe in that from... That's just like my musical approach. And and you've collabed with, with quite a lot of interesting people as well across your journey of making albums. What have you who have you learned from you've collaborated with? Pretty much everyone really. I remember I collaborated uh, with Carl Cox in the studio of Spooky. Okay. And uh, I learned a lot from like the whole engineering skills of, of the engineer at the time. Uh, also, obviously, in terms of composing, uh, Johnny McDade, who's with Snow Patrol, uh, now, uh, you know, whenever we work together, it's like I learn so much about songwriting and all these kind of things. But also, um, you know, from from a different dynamic, you know, when I work with like some of the younger guys now, mm. like someone like Jordan Suckley, mm-hmm. his approach, his dynamic, without all the knowledge of where this music comes from mm-hmm. and, and, and what the music went through. He just purely loves that kind of music and he has that approach and that sort of pure straightforwardness is something that inspires me too. I learn a lot from because sometimes, of course, when you're an artist, you get too, too much digged in with your head. You just kind of like go deeper and deeper and deeper rather than just kind of like let go, let it be music. It's interesting to to talk about collaboration, um, and and I uh, once asked Niall Rogers when you hit a kind of fallow period and things aren't really you know kind of going your way, and he's he's had we think of him as a complete legend, but of course he he's been through various curves, including the complete death of disco when the phone just wasn't ringing, and I asked him what his what his advice is for for people who uh, are in those phases and collaborating is, is was a massive part of it. It was like, work with other people. Expose yourself to, to new and different ideas. That will that will push you forward. But it's also like, you know, focus on what you like. Because as an example, you would have said the last maybe five years haven't been so good for trance music. I can tell you, yes, we might have been out of the focus of the, the limelight, 
not on the main stage of festivals anymore. But you know what? It was a very, very good cleansing of that scene because all these people that just kind of like stepped on to become famous or make money or whatsoever, they left. They probably did EDM or whatever they do. And the people who love that music, they love that music. So in a way, the last five, six years have been phenomenal for trans music. There's so much amazing music out there. There's so many fantastic artists making this music. It is incredible. So I was going to say, where is your head at, you know, musically? And I was going to ask you exactly. You've basically answered the next question yeah. that I was going to say, you know, which is, that do, you know, do you still make trance music? And you obviously absolutely do. You know, you, you love it. It's a real passion for you. And it's look, something and there is still a scene. And it sounds like it's a very pure and focused scene now. Look, there was a time when I very famously was quoted that the most of the trance music that's out there is rather cheesy crap. Hmm. And I stick with that. There was a time when like a lot of people, um, you know, that didn't have any idea of this music, just made the music because it was the popular sound of the moment. And the thing is, there's a very thin line between a very cheesy melody and a very good defined quality melody. And most likely you will overstep the boundary if you don't feel the music. And that's actually what happened. There was so much crap out there that I didn't want to be affiliated with that music really. But if I look back at the last five, six years, I'm very, very proudly saying I'm a trans artist. I produce trans music. I play trans in all the facets that they're around. Well, pick then for us a record from the last five years, from you or from someone that you really admire, that you think is a really gold standard of embodying exactly what you just said. What about a record that um, the aficionados of trance in the last five years have said, yeah, this is a great record of yours? I think a track that um, that I liked is like one of the, the one of my last albums from then on. It's called Touched by Heaven. Yeah, which I believe is like a track that uh, you know touched quite a few people, at least from the social media response of it. Great. Well, let's listen to that as a as a gold standard. Trailblazers. So what's next for you, Paul? I'm interested to know what the future holds. Well, uh, there are still many things. I'm still, uh, you know, let's say you're running out of time if it comes down to the things uh, that I want to do. Obviously, this summer in Ibiza, we started this new project uh, called Shine, yeah. which is uh, really, truly focusing on our music, on the music that we love, rather than all the glittery nonsense that's mm. usually, um, you know, coming with it yeah and, and you're doing that where in amnesia uh, we're doing that at vista right okay. and uh so it was a very successful season so we're really happy and we're looking forward for another one next year so that's obviously something we're already preparing then uh, i'm just in the last steps of finishing the new album obviously yeah, tell us about that the whole album launch campaign at printworks yeah and um Again, I collaborated with, um, you know, people from the greater Vended family. Vended Records is, yeah. is our record label. Mm. There's so many great artists, as I mentioned before. And like to work with them is just like something that is a lot of fun. To me, making music is one of the most fun things in the world. 
and making that most fun thing with with friends is even better. So that's why I enjoy doing that. And uh, so that's the next sort of like, you know, big thing for me, the new album. Mm. Um, it's going to be called Music Rescues Me. Okay. One step at a time, like still tons of projects in my head. Where are you and geographically based most of the year now? The headquarter is in Berlin. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we've pretty much on the road a lot of time of yeah, the of course sure. yeah um, let me ask is there a collaboration or, or a few collaborations with are there some people out there who you haven't collaborated with who you really want to are there some you know some some prize people some people who have ins really inspired you that you really want to get in the studio with I don't know I don't really have like let's say a bucket list of people I would like to work with it's usually when I have an idea I kind of think of that vocalist would be really perfect to work with and you know someone like Sue McLaren who's maybe not a big pop star but probably one of the most wonderful musicians and vocalists there is uh, I just love her vocal I just love her voice and, and so you know it's more working with people who I think have something to give to my music rather than like that could be great because at the end of the day I don't even know if it would work you know, if I when I work with Johnny Johnny McDade, um, we are really quick. He he obviously comes from the rock world, mm. like so he's listening to like sounds and music in his way. I'm listening to that from my angle, but you know we both know what music should do. It should reach people. It should be on a good quality level. It should be. It should have a meaning. Yeah. Johnny from Snow Patrol. Yeah. So yeah. I'm interested. I was involved in the breaking of Snow Patrol. Gary's a really, really good friend. Yeah. I'm interested to know how on earth you and Snow Patrol, one of Snow Patrol, ended up working together. That's a that's a like it seems like a crazy uh, and beautiful thing. Well, it was in uh, I don't know. I think it was like the beginning of the 2000s as well. Um, Johnny was involved in another band that I really, really liked, and I kind of like mentioned that in an interview. And then they reached out to me and say, "Say, are you really talking about us?" And says, "Yes, I just love it." So we met up and actually and started working together on a track called "Time of Our Lives." Um, the band was called Vega 4. Hmm. And, um, you know, then um, Vega 4, um, I don't know, didn't exist anymore. And yeah. Johnny did other things. And then uh, Johnny joined Snow Patrol. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. We just, like, stayed friends from the early days on. And we made, like, you know, different other tracks. Like, you know, Home, as an example, is a, a track we've done together. And uh, and uh, everywhere. So Because you're an indie kid at heart, aren't you? We started this conversation with you falling in love with the Smiths. And, you know, like you work. So you working with Snow Patrol actually isn't that much of a stretch now that we've found out about your, you know, where your heart originally lay. Well, the thing is, if I wouldn't be such a loner, I probably wouldn't would be in a van <laughs> you never know <laughs> so the last question that we ask everybody Paul is that it's an imagined scenario which might happen uh, where aliens have come to this earth and they are surveying this uh, this solar system to for some kind of you know galactic superhighway and they're looking at maybe destroying this planet and you've got to play them a tune or give them a tune that will show them to, to tell them that you know we're worth saving so you're tuned to save the world what would that be in order to bring that across and explain what humans emotionally in a positive way are capable of i would say it has to be a piece of music by luke howard 
and most likely a track called CB. And why, why Luke Howard and why this track? My wife actually introduced me to the music of Luke Howard. You know, I didn't really sort of like hear about this and she was like playing this and I was like, she's like, what is this beautiful music? What, what is this? It's like, because, you know, it is music. It's kind of like really lush. It's kind of like a piano and, 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 and you kind of feel like it's in the background, but you will notice you stop talking. You will be sucked into the music and the, and the emotions of this music and you will just like simply, I don't know, be captured by it. And I think there's so much emotion in that. There's so much passion in that. And I believe that will be something that on the big scope of what we are as the human race will be a good example of showing the aliens live, leave us alive. <laughs> Wonderful. Fantastic. All right. So we're going to listen to that. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on Trailblazers. Good luck with everything for the future. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. I have to say uh, one thing for you, which, I, which I've researched from my... For, I, I'm in a Berlin band, so I, I called my, the, 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 one of the main guy uh, who engineers, Tom Bellamy, and he said to say, Wiele Volk to you. Which, so what does that mean exactly? Uh, um, well, um, um, a lot of success. Yeah, yeah. We wish you the greatest success. All right. Um, it was an absolute pleasure and an honour to meet you, Paul. Likewise. Thank you very much for having me. Trailblazers. Paul Van Dyke. Originals. Trailblazers. Paul Van Dyke, a trailblazer. What an absolute joy to talk to him. And as I said at the top, a real uh, a pleasure for me to get a, an insight into Electronica from a viewpoint that I really knew very little about. And the one thing that I took from that is what incredible passion mm. that man has. And, and I think that passion and enthusiasm for almost anything is a very attractive quality. And, and also, is. he's so into music. He's just such a musician, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that passion and that enthusiasm, we're seeing that shining so strongly in this series, aren't we? David Rodigan, Paul Oakenfold, these are people who really just, you know, have... have thrown themselves into their careers and, and tremendous success has followed. If you've enjoyed Trailblazers as much uh, as me and Nick have, then please give <laughs> us a five-star rating uh, via the usual methods. Head to Deezer.com to check out our full playlist and for more episodes. And, of course, subscribe now via your usual podcast provider. Trailblazers. Next up on Trailblazers, it's Tom Middleton. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.